Test, 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 test. Check, check. All right. Now we're amplified. We can make some noise. Uh, so thank you, Matt, for that overview and introduction and giving us some background into the history of what occurred during this period. Uh, first off, uh, Nahid uh, and feel free to expand as you will, but did the U.S. government use any sort of euphemistic language to cover up its internment of Japanese Americans? And if so, what kind? And what, do you th what was the reasoning behind such language? So, uh, just to be clear, the word euphemistic language means kind of flowery language to, uh, to, to mask, so to speak, uh, something that you don't outright want to say. Uh, and so, yes, they did use such language. Um, basically, we all know that uh, the Japanese Americans went willingly. However, the description that was given to the general public, um, as Matt uh, was uh, giving us the information on, it was the propaganda was, was very uh, initially, you know, they're coming to get us. But then when they were being interned, um, basically it was evacuation rather than forced removal. Mm. Uh, assembly centers rather than prison camps. And uh, it was basically confinement uh, within barbed wires and uh, ammunition and, and guns uh, pointing at you. So this flowery language was uh, said to basically kind of separate the masses, make sure that everyone kind of fell in line and agreed with the government. Um, and this was certainly not the case. Okay. Thank you. Um... Dr. Schmidt, um, we, we heard about the ruling of Karimatsu versus the United States, which justified removing the Japanese Americans. Um, the justice who presided over or wrote the uh, defense of that was uh, Justice Hugo Black. So uh, what was the reason that Justice Black gave for approving? Well, part of the reason I want to talk about Karimatsu... And, and if you would use the, the microphone. Thank you. Part of the reason I wanted to... <laughs> part of the reason I want to discuss Korematsu is because I think it's uh, important. I think the goal tonight is to gain as much perspective on this event as possible. Right. I think one way to help gain that perspective is to think about the differences between moral reasoning and constitutional reasoning. All right. So the justices on Korematsu were not deciding, and Hugo Black understood himself, not be deciding a question of racial animus as much as he was the constitutional powers of the President of the United States to intern people for national security reasons. Right? There are a few lines from Justice Black's decision that are appropriate to read before digging into them. One that he argued that at the outset that pressing public necessity may justify the existence of such restrictions, yet racial antagonisms never can. Right? So he's very clear about the distinction between the two of these. He does not want to be understood as legitimating uh, a racial animus. Right? He says further, our task would be simply simple, our duty clear, if this were a case involving the imprisonment of a loyal citizen on the basis of a racial prejudice. Now note that's how we tend to understand the case in moral terms, and that may even be an accurate way to understand it. However, Justice Black and the Supreme Court have to weigh constitutional reasoning because 
You can think about it this way. Uh, uh, Benjamin Cardozo, a great uh, New York judge, said that uh, in, in constitutional law, if you create a, if you create a principle, then the, ex the exercise of that principle tends to grow to reach the logical conclusion of that, what that principle allows. All right. So if they if they treat this, if they treat it too simply, if they treat any case too simply, if they consider it for the wrong reasons, constitutional reason can create greater injustices. All right. Sometimes that leads to very poor reasoning and very bad decisions, uh, uh, judicial decisions. Nevertheless, that's kind of what's going on in the mind of the justice when he's trying to sort this kind of thing out. All right. So Black essentially argued that you know the advent of the military necessity was what justified the order. But what's interesting is that he seemed not to share this, the, the uh, opinion that the West Coast was threatened by Japanese Americans. All right? Well, how could he come to this decision if he didn't think that the West Coast was threatened? Well, he said that that's not the role of the court to make that make that choice, make that decision. It lies outside of the purview. All right. So he was stuck, and this is what more or less divided all the justices. Uh, he was stuck having to square the report uh, that Joseph, or uh, something with, I can't remember the, justice, the general's name that issued the exclusion order from Alameda County that applied directly to the Fred Kormatsu. Um, but the, you know, that's, those were the facts of the case in, the, um, in, in Kormatsu. So they had to be, the justice had to take those one at a time, figure out what, um, figure out what was the, uh, uh, constitutional argument being made on, on behalf of Fred Kormatsu. Um, and what's really curious about this is that even though he doesn't share the overall view, that there is enough context in the order issued by DeWitt that there are some, right, even if it's just a handful of Japanese Americans that they deem to be actual threats, that uh, that could justify the order plausibly. And that's all the court needed, all right? Now, Korematsu has been, has been roundly criticized by all judicial scholars as one of the worst decisions in the history of the United States. Uh, it's right up there at Dred Scott in terms of you know, uh, quality of judicial reasoning. All right? But that doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile to kind of step through this and figure out why he actually made these, or why they were actually making these arguments. I promise I won't play with this. I know Cotton Law everyone's there. <laughs> But uh, so I want to. I, I, I focus a little bit on, on on Black's view here. But hold on one second. Yeah, because one of the things I wanted to ask uh, Susan is uh, about that legal standing. Is this a good law, right? Or uh, what what affects the law such that? I mean, it was claimed to be one of the worst. Why? I mean, there are obvious reasons, but legally, I mean. Well, in, in practicality, one of the reasons that. Um, people say that the six justices made this opinion was that to make the other, to, to decide the other way, who's going to enforce that opinion? You and what army, right? So how are you going to enforce that, that the Japanese internment is wrong? So that was a practical matter of what they were looking at as justices as well. But has it ever, has Korematsu ever been overturned? Did this happen again? Well, because of the, the Muslim ban and the case that went before the Supreme Court last year, um, Chief Justice Roberts, mainly in in answering Justice Sotomayor's dissent, said that Korematsu was a good law. But was Korematsu, saying Korematsu is not good law necessary in finding that the Muslim ban was upheld? 
No. So if you say that something's no longer good law, and you don't have to say that in order to make an opinion work, we call that dicta. Mm -hmm. And is dicta, is it, is it precedent? Is dicta precedent? No. So um, as, an, as lawyers in law school, we learned um, we're based upon case law in the United States, statute, statutes and whatever, but our case law is based upon precedent. So when we look at laws uh, that are based on precedent, um, case law, we look at things that were necessary to decide that case. So Chief Justice Roberts, in saying that Kornamatsu is no longer good law, in an opinion where he didn't have to find that, means that it was dicta. So it really has not ever been overturned. Um, and it's, it does stand in, in the history of Plessy versus Ferguson, Dred Scott, uh, Black versus Bell, like all of the, some of the really bad decisions that have been made by the Supreme Court. Um, and it could, it, it still is precedent. Right. It has not been overturned. Um, and, uh, and Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent about the, the Muslim ban, pointed out how similar the Muslim ban was to Korematsu. And a lot of constitutional scholars believe that Sotomayor got it right. Right. And that um, Roberts really painted this picture of Korematsu being wrong in order to show that we're deciding something different here. That Korematsu was bad, but that's not what we're doing. Um, and a lot of constitutional scholars there thought he got protest too much. Um, and, and that's why he went out on a limb to say how bad Korematsu was. Okay. All right. Dr. Smith, you were going to, to talk a little bit more about the background in, in terms of the laws. So actually, yeah, and I thought I'd go through, uh, you know, the actual decisions of the justices on the Supreme Court at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I've already talked a little bit about Black, um, but the context of Hugo Black's decision assume, makes, uh, follows an assumption, you know, that comes to us from the founders, that the presidency, presidency should be active, right? And the active presidency should be able to, well, why? Address immediate and exigent threats to the security of the nation, right? Um, he was loath to set any precedent that would limit the capacity of the president to respond to those threats in the future, right? So when he's thinking about Korematsu, he's actually thinking about hundreds of cases that could come if, he, if, if Korematsu was decided somehow wrong. He doesn't want to limit the president's capacity to do that. Um, that's, his majority opinion uh, was not, was only joined by one justice, Felix Frankfurter, um, who argued in this concurrence, curiously, that it wasn't the court's role to overturn, or, or to, um, yeah, overturn Fred Korematsu's internment because uh, that power was given to DeWitt by the Congress and the President. Matt talked about uh, the War Powers Act, right? We told Congress, effectively, to grant the President this sort of capacity to intern Japanese Americans, right? So we want to think it's people, you know, uh, some cabal of people doing this to, you know, who, who, just as an expression of racial animus, Frank Furter says, no, it's everyone making this decision. And no, he joins he joins the concurrence, or he joins the majority opinion with the concurrence because of this. Now, what's a curious dissent, and maybe maybe it's not Jack's, uh, Justice Jackson is the best dissent, but Frank Murphy in his dissent maybe makes a comment that's better for uh, better to detail on a, a panel on race. 
Uh, he says, I dissent from this legalism of race, or legalization of racism. And his argument is that in order to uh, imperil the due process rights of Japanese Americans, guaranteed under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, uh, you would have to assess, you would have to ascribe guilt uh, and a guilty mind to individuals on the basis of collective action. All right, and he argued that no, that um, um, you know that uh, punishing people can never be or can never be uh, collective. Right, justice is always individual. If you start treating justice as a collective uh, event, then you need to get to things like the Japanese internment. Right, if you punish, essentially, you punish everybody for one or two people. Right, the American justice system was constructed explicitly to prevent that. All right, and he's noting that with their over concern for the capacity of the active presidency, they're going to trample all over this fundamental principle of American constitutional law. All right, and I think having that sort of perspective helps us understand both the majority opinion and, although the other ones are worth reading, at least part of the uh, dissents offered by uh, Roberts, Jackson, and Murphy. Right. Thank you. Nahid, I mean, this is this is all tied into, you, know, you have these nice legal issues, you have the euphemisms that you mentioned earlier. Uh, could you talk a little bit about Orientalism, right? That might be a term that um, many people aren't familiar with. Uh, talk about that and the role of Orientalism, how it played into the executive order uh, 9066 and uh, and then maybe we could talk about some similarities, how euphemisms and Orientalism still exist. So, so uh, switching gears, <clears throat> we were talking about the legal aspect here, not only switch gears to racism, but, right? Or, yeah. um, but law would never have racism in it, right? Yeah. <laughs> because that's, that was the element in the executive order, so to speak, right? So, so to understand um, racism, uh, very simply, must uh, have this understanding of white supremacy, right? Um, whether we like it or not, that is also the other uh, elephant in the room. Um, and as far as understanding uh, the logic, so to speak, of maintaining that supremacy, um, in, in understanding that, we kind of break it down uh, explanation-wise as the three pillars that hold that up, okay? So, uh, the first is the logic of slavery, right? Um, where you have slavery equals capitalism, okay? And that is something that kept going um, for over 200 years, right? Uh, and that basically held up uh, the concept, the notion of white supremacy, okay? Um, the second is um, genocide uh, that pairs with colonialism, okay? And when we're talking about that, we're uh, in effect talking about the natives of the indigenous of, of this country, right? And so you have this understanding that um, yes, uh, the our, our, our government is responsible for mass uh, uh, massacres, really. Um, but the idea behind that is to actually the effect, the goal is to erase uh, the natives. So that is actually the goal of uh, colonialism, right? Um, and that is genocide, uh, and that is the erasure of the natives. Um, and if you really, really stop to think about it, think about uh, the indigenous people 
people of this land? Where are they? Where are they in numbers? Where are they economically? Where are they, um, you know, what conditions they live in? Uh, think about their rights. Think about their voting rights. Think about all that. You know, how, how even their, um, their IDs given to them, tribal IDs, aren't good enough, right, for um, entering and exiting uh, into the United States or their tribal lands, right? So think about those things. Uh, and the last thing is uh, the third pillar of, uh, of white supremacy and, and racism is uh, Orientalism, okay? Uh, very simply, um, Orientalism is defined as the process of the West, um, how it defines itself as a superior civilization uh, by constructing itself in opposition to the exotic, yet inferior um, orient for other, okay? That is, that is the definition of Orientalism. And how it plays um, into the logic is that it marks certain people um, as inferior, right? Uh, and it poses, it, it says that they pose a constant threat to the well-being of the empire, right? Which is the Western Empire for um, for us is the, the United States, right? Um, these people will always be seen as an inferior uh, people and they will always uh, be seen as a threat, right? Um, and typically it's, it's foreigners, it's the other, um, it's people of color. Um, and then so the logic in, 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 uh, in, in bringing it to the Muslim land the logic, sorry, the logic um, is evident in also not only the Muslim ban, but it's in it's evident in the anti-immigration policies that are trying to be passed. Um, you know, uh, Matt gave reference to the Chinese Exclusionary Act. Um, we had even uh, in the second wave of immigration, we had uh, people from Eastern Europe, uh, Jews and, and Catholics who were banned. Right? Um, they weren't white enough back then. Okay? So you had this concept of um, kind of getting to that level or that shade of whiteness where you were ex uh, accepted, right? Um, and it's, it's basically racism is, you know, it's based on your race, it's based on your color. So, so uh, even though everybody uh, that kind of came in, immigrant wise, um, all felt the heat. Uh, U.S. immigration, um, unfortunately, uh, those of uh, us who were not really considered white um, are still kind of the other, will always be designated as the other, will always be looked as uh, foreign, uh, part of the Orient, and therefore a perpetual threat to the United States government. Um, as far as, um, you know, Using uh, the lesson that we have from the executive order, uh, the lesson is very simply put as uh, there needs to be a check on uh, the war powers. You know, like what what is the check on national security? What is what is what will define national security for some as being you know a threat, while others are not a threat, right? So. Uh, there has to be a check in place. This is something that, um, unfortunately, uh, was not there for the Japanese Americans um, and for the German and uh, 
Italian Americans. Uh, but to think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, four years of internment. Correct? Three and a half? Three, two, two and a half to three. So um, I, I don't know about you, but I, I can't imagine uh, that. Uh, and, and these people were constantly trying to prove their loyalty, right? Uh, and so the parallels are, are amazing um, as far as projecting uh, what has happened in the last even, what, four years uh, prior to even the election where um, it was, what, December 7th, um, then uh, President Trump had said that, you know, total and complete ban on Muslims entering the U.S. Then he further uh, went on to say that there would be a Muslim registry. So when he said ban, the Japanese Americans stood up, registry, uh, the Jewish Americans stood up. So this is not um, this is not anything to be taken lightly. Um, we don't learn from history, then we're going to repeat it most certainly. Uh, and uh, there's always uh, the threat of the other. You know, the, the Mexican Americans. Um, are, are seeing that day in and day out. Uh, so, so think of that uh, when you think about white supremacy. Do not just just think of uh, the African Americans who are still still at it from from day one, right? But they're paired with the natives, the Chinese, you know, the Catholics, the Jews, everybody down the line, right? Um, and people say, well, everyone's taking turns, but uh, it's it's quite amazing that we have such an amazing history uh, behind us, uh, several hundred years as a country, as a nation, but we're still not um, uh, getting rid of our, um, so to speak, racism, right? Um, and so this is really what what uh, the justices ignored, um, kind of they put a spin on it for national security in Korematsu, and um, it is a real threat for most certainly Muslim Americans who are uh, definitively painted as the other, right, since 9-11. Um, and so uh, really it's something, something that uh, is quite parallel to the, uh, what has happened to the Japanese uh, Americans and, and we hope that uh, people will learn from the history. All right, thank you. Uh, speaking of history not repeating itself, uh, um, do you see any similarities uh, for, uh, I mean... The softball is what Well, uh, but I mean, just, and it doesn't have to just focus on, like, what's happening in the past couple of years, but, I mean, this seems to be a recurring theme uh, throughout history. So uh, could you share some, Matt, of uh, insights? Uh, well, you know, if you examine our history closely, as many of you have, then you know that xenophobia has always been an unfortunate byproduct of our melting pot culture, right? We're, we're a nation of immigrants, and unfortunately, when you, when you have a, such large number of people coming from all over the world, people that were here first, people that were native born are going to argue that, you know, they should be excluded in some way, that they should have you know, fewer rights, fewer opportunities, uh, less access than native foreign people. Uh, certainly this was true in the years prior to World War II, it's still uh, the case today. Um, but we should think about some of the criticisms that were being leveled at Japanese Americans uh, in the years prior to World War II, and some of the criticisms that are being leveled at, at you know, migrants and uh, immigrants and migrants today. I'll go through just a few here. They take our jobs and drive down wages. And I do want to point out, um, I'm not saying that there's no truth 
to what I'm talking about. I'm just saying that these are the criticisms that are being leveled. They take our jobs, they drive down wages, they cost us more in taxes because they utilize social services, but in the case of illegal immigrants, they don't pay income taxes. We probably all heard that one. Uh, they pollute our culture. Anything that uh, deviates from the perceived norm and seems different and therefore wrong. Uh, and we really uh, pick and choose with this one because most Americans love Mexican foods yeah. and Chinese food and Indian food and uh, sushi, right? So there's certain things that we embrace warmly and then other things where we say, well, that's got to go, all right? So it's very interesting to me how that works. Uh, there's this argument that if immigrants are granted legal rights and civil rights, that somehow it will lead to a uh, diminishing of rights for native-born Americans as if civil rights are pie. And if you have two pieces of pie and you have three pieces of pie, there won't be enough pie for me. That's not how civil rights work. Uh, so I've, I've noticed that one as well. Uh, and then fear. Um, I believe that fear is just this pervasive, base human emotion that drives virtually every decision that we make um, you know, across you know, cultures, societies. Um, and certainly in the years prior to World War II, the media was doing everything it could to ramp up suspicion and alarmism. And, and really sound, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this, create this culture of, of fear and panic when there really was no hard evidence to support such a claim. I'm glad they stopped doing that. <laughs> Touche, sir. <laughs> uh, and in just a little while, I am going to explain how, contrary to everything that we've heard on the news about uh, Islamic extremism, Muslims and Arabic speaking peoples living here in the U.S. have been instrumental in the fight. Uh, to uh, prevent terrorism and to root out uh, terror cells. So I'll talk about that looking forward. Susan, do you have anything to add on this? I mean, I know you're uh, lots of cases and experiences. I mean, do you see any similarities in what's occurring maybe in our own neighborhood uh, or I don't know? Definitely. Okay, good. And some of our current justices or, or, or recent justices have warned us about this. Um, even the, the late Antonin Scalia said um, that, you know, poor Monsu was our past, but it's also our future. He said, you're kidding yourself if you think the same thing won't happen again. Um, and he said that in 2014. And, you know, very apropos to what, was, what we've seen in our recent history. So, um, they knew, and I, I think that the, the attitude of Korematsu of, you know, national security first, um, that type of argument is, is, is oftentimes used by demagogues and people just as a, as a reason um, to, 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 to hurt people in their, uh, in their, race, in their racism and their bias. And um, it's, it's necessary to look at law in a different direction and and more like what Justice Murphy said in, in his dissent in Korematsu, that if we look at it from the individualist perspective and a due process rights, then we say, what are we willing to take away from due process in order to protect ourselves? How, how, how bad does that threat have to be? And can it pass a strict scrutiny test? So it has to be narrowly tailored to protect us, and it needs to be based more upon the, the individual, and it can't be, we are scared of these people as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
a lot of times, especially now um, in our in our recent history, we have um, gotten to the point where we are afraid of the other, the other people, the people who are not us. And um, right, I know it's really scary. I scare people all the time. Um, but in, in it, I see it in the people who come to see me at my immigration clinic. Not, it's it's hilarious because nine times out of ten, I'll have an Anglo person come with the immigrant to come see me, and the Anglo person will sit down and they'll say, "I need to tell you about Jose Doe." He's a great guy. He does everything for everybody. He's not like the people that you hear about. He just does this, that, and the other. And I want to say, guess what? Jose Doe is the rule. He's not the exception. But they know this person. And they become they become not the other in their eyes. Right. So it's it's a matter of the way we see people and when we know them we are more willing to protect their rights than if we don't know them right so i think we we really see this in recent history and it, it it's a it's going to be a responsibility of all of us to make sure that there is no other that we as a people as a nation of immigrants that we see each other just like each other, no matter how much we look alike, no matter if we worship in different spaces, that we are a country that's founded on ideals and not on an, a nativist culture. Now, there's always been that back and forth in our in our history, so we have to make sure the rights out there. Okay. So one of the recurring themes that I've heard is how Karamatsu is still on the books, right? And um, so Dr. Schmidt, I mean, Mark Tushnet suggests that uh, due to these Japanese internment, we've learned our lesson and this won't happen again. Or at least it's less likely uh, to engage in such racial profiling. So do you think he's correct? And to what extent? Or I think he taps into something that's true, but I also think he's wrong in fundamentals. Do explain. <laughs> I'll try. Right, so it's very difficult to evaluate whether or not we've actually learned anything, whether Korematsu taught us a lesson. Um, and part of what makes that so difficult is it's easy to distinguish, or well, it's, it's easy to say, but it's hard, it's difficult to distinguish between our attitudes during peacetime and our attitudes during war. Here we are in a relatively safe room, all right, we're evaluating with the, with the perspective of hindsight, all right? When things when, you know what, it's the fan, all right? We're thrown into a state of war, a state of nature, a state of war of all against all. These nice little rational expositions that we're having here will go out the window too, all right? It's, it's human nature, it's, un, it's unavoidable, all right? If, if, you're, if you're skeptical, you don't have to look any farther than the uh, criminal justice literature. Prison is very much a state of nature. Prisons are highly segregated by race, all right? And self-segregation too, it's not, obviously it's not enforced, all right? So how can we think about whether or not we learned anything from Korematsu, right? Well, there, there are a few ways to approach that. Um, and the way I like to think of it, and it's getting a little philosophical, so excuse me, but I really think this is the most accurate way to think of it. Racism, evil, is something that can be eliminated only arithmetically. It's never something that can be eliminated metaphysically. We won't do away with, we won't do away with evil completely, all right? And we never will. As a matter of fact, we bring ourselves to grief that we seek to eliminate it as a concept. But if we focus on eliminating it where we can, arithmetically, little instances of it, we can bring ourselves closer to justice. All right. Now it's a long process. It's difficult. Um, 
But it brings this enters into a question of like, well, what actually is, you know, what is? Am I being uh, cynical? Am I being pessimistic here? I don't think so. All right. Think about what what is our view of human nature? All right. To suggest that we're never going to face a Korematsu again is to suggest that we can somehow change human nature. We can. Human nature is we can we can influence it with good law, with good constitutional reasoning, uh, with strong cultural beliefs. All right, with strong communal ties, lots of social capital, being able to reach out in your communities. All right, uh, turning the other into a Jose. All right, um, by building up that, we eliminate evil, we eliminate racism automatically. But as a problem, it's always going to exist. And again, criminal justice literature, prisons, everyone segregates. One example of many we could give for that. All right, so what are these particular areas in which we've grown? All right, uh, well, one, uh, as suggested by Frank Murphy's decision, we, uh, or, uh, sorry, dissent, um, what we're wrapping our heads around today is this idea that there's no such thing as collective guilt, all right? We might, in Korematsu, the problem was the idea of collective guilt for a particular group of people, all right? Not because of the actions of individuals, but the act, uh, or projecting the actions of individuals onto a, a group at large, being able to make decisions uh, about them as a people based on things they didn't do. That violates the basic tenets of justice of the American, of the American system, all right? And there's another way to look at it. Constitutional law has been improved, all right? Susan is absolutely right that dicta is not the same as case law. However, Justice Kennedy did use essentially the Korematsu uh, ruling to overturn another civil rights case, Powers v. Hardman, all right? Anti-sodomy laws in Texas were ruled unconstitutional. All right, Kennedy used essentially that the reasoning in Korematsu to overturn um, uh, to overturn to overturn those uh, that Texas law. All right, so constitutional law can apply or can apply that same standard that Kennedy did in that case to future cases. So even though the Korematsu decision remains on the books, and Susan is absolutely right uh, that it is still on the books because dicta is dicta, we have advanced. All right, our constitutional law has gotten better. All right, putting yet more bulwarks in between uh, us and tyranny. Uh, an example of that, uh, the first two versions of Trump's travel ban were soundly defeated in court. They were, they were train wrecks, all right? No, no uh, honestly, the administration, I'm, I'm sure when Donald Trump is done, uh, he'll say that those first two were train, wreck, train wrecks too, right? I honestly think he will. They were terribly written. They didn't even apply to, they, well, maybe I'm being honest. <laughs> Well, when he's out of the game, maybe, but I mean, I if you're getting, presidents give like after their term, they, they admit when they're wrong. It's like a tradition. He's a focus, focus, focus. All right, yeah, that, um, that does, before I go to Matt here, if you have some questions, make sure they're written down. I'm going to come around here in just a second to pick any up. Uh, but Matt, I, I'm curious, since we're, we've talked about the other now, uh, we have a realistic picture of Karamatsu and how it might be used. Uh, what are some positive impacts of immigration? And, you know, does diversity and multiculturalism make us stronger or weaker? What does history tell us? Well, I mentioned tasting food that comes from other countries, right? So that's, mm -hmm. that's one right there. I think we all enjoy that. But um, the example that I'm going to focus on is um, the war on terror. Over the last 18 years, there have been dozens of terror attacks that were foiled before they, in the planning stages, they were foiled. And in every case, the agents that were responsible for intercepting that critical information 
and foiling those um, those attacks were were Muslims and, and Arabic speakers that were working for the FBI, the CIA, Homeland Security, right? So they have played an instrumental role in uh, preventing further attacks on the United States. Um, and rarely does the media cover these stories, either because um, it's a national security issue and they're not allowed to divulge that information, or because it's a non-story, it's not newsworthy. I mean, if something was going to happen that didn't happen and could have happened, maybe the media is not so interested in that. There's more kind of in-your-face stories that the media could, could cover. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's very interesting. Our, our media is... We hear this term a lot, fake news. That's be, that's part of the lexicon now, isn't it? Um, I, I don't like that term. I like the term irresponsible news reporting. There's still good journalists out there doing good work, but there's a lot of irresponsible journalism as well. And, and you know, as, as citizens who consume this information, we need to think critically and make good decisions about what is what is credible and what is nonsense. Okay. Um, well, we've got about. 20 minutes. I wonder if uh, if we want to start with Nahid here, if you have uh, some some ideas on some of the big topics we have. I know I've been asking questions, but things come up as people are discussing. If there's something you would like to share, either related to uh, the positives of diversity and multiculturalism, or something else related to tonight's topic that you would like to share, and and then I'll I'll pick up any questions that might be out there. Well, um, I am just uh, really humbled to be part of this panel uh, and uh, be a part of Owensboro that is this uh, uh, forward-thinking in actually talking about uh, things that might be uncomfortable, right? What we have going here at the library is is wonderful. It's, It's a dialogue. Uh, and it's different dialogues, and this is a very dialogue, it's a very hard dialogue to have. Um, and it, the parallels for uh, what happened um, in the past uh, relative to what is happening uh, to some minorities here in the United States, um, what may happen um, in the near future, uh, also it's, it's it's, uh, it's great to have that discussion. It's great to have that understanding that we are really responsible uh, for many things in our country and, and we do have somewhat control over it. Um, and uh, it's the, this, this understanding of the other, um, you know, we're having this conversation here, but uh, trust me when I say that it is not a conversation that is really uh, happening um, at all. Uh, it's it's a com- conversation that people are scared to have. Um, you know, everyone wants to point the finger uh, at each other and, oh, you're a racist, you're a racist, and it's, it's, you're not going to get anywhere if you don't really ask the, the questions that are hard. Um, and even to people you've never met to, to have that conversation and, and find out who they are um, and what really uh, is the backstory of what the heck is going on uh, regarding them, right? Um, it's, it's, I think nowadays it's very easy for us to um, have that one Native American uh, token friend, uh, that African American token, the Muslim American, um, and, and I'm just being very honest, right? 
um, very honest and open discussion here, but uh, I think that people have to do more than that, right? Um, take that conversation further, you know, uh, go to their homes. Um, trust me when I say that they'll be more than happy to have you. Um, have that coffee that, you know, uh, you're, you might not want to have, but um, get to know the person. And this is not going to solve all problems uh, that we have as a country on racism or uh, our description of the other, um, but it will further the conversation to actually understand and empathize uh, with people who we might not have really uh, taken a look, even the first look, right? Um, the parallels that are here uh, with the case with what's happening in, in the country, uh, most certainly as a Muslim, uh, are very frightening, uh, I should say. Uh, and, um, and Matt made a very uh, good um, just observation, but he, he, he stated a fact that Muslim Americans were actually are your first line of defense. Um, what he did not mention and what no one will tell you except the Muslim American, is that um, we have been warning the United States for a long time about uh, the, the fringe um, on you know, the extreme right, uh, which many Muslims don't even consider uh, part of the faith, that are being way in politics. And I'm not saying politics in their own country, but politics in our country. Right? Um, not amongst the Muslim community, but we're talking about with our own government. And that is something that we have been warning, jumping up and down, you know, you, these are the people you do not want to make your best friends, and so no one listened, right? Um, the, one, the one good thing that happened, um, and please forgive me for, for phrasing it that way, uh, after that horrific event was the fact that uh, the Muslim community was front and center. Uh, we have always been open uh, to uh, educate, to welcome people, uh, and uh, for the most part, uh, apologize, right? And that happened for multiple years afterwards, um, with the exception of one thing. Uh, if you will notice in, in, in the current atmosphere, uh, only two of the three things I mentioned are, are remain the same, right? We're, we're educating, we're welcoming, but we're no longer apologizing. Because what Matt also mentioned was, and actually Eric, uh, this, is, this is no longer guilt by association, right? You cannot demonize people based on the actions of another people, right? Irrespective, I do not know whoever did whatever. Um, and it's something uh, that, that I think uh, the American public and Muslim Americans have to, to grapple with. Um, there is so much more that I could say, but um, I know that I have wonderful comments here that I want to ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> Susan, would you like to say something before we uh, ask the questions? Or? All right. All right, so uh, one of the questions uh, talks about the comparison uh, of the Muslim ban to immigration. Uh, does this comparison hold up since the U.S. citizens, uh, since we have U.S. citizens in internment camps instead of immigrants, or illegal immigrants, I assume, so? 
Okay, so no, anybody, right? It doesn't have to necessarily be you, but I think it, it's playing off the sense that we have American citizens that are in turn versus uh, immigrants that are here. Okay, so we're talking about the, the, the children or some of the people we have in. Right, yeah. So, yeah, as Matt noticed or talked about, um, Nisea and Nisei, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, all right, well. In current, I've had more than one U.S. citizen that has been detained in immigration detention um, who couldn't uh, for more than a few days. Um, recently, I had a woman who was, uh, is a U.S. citizen by law. Her father was a U.S. service member, and um, she was born in Germany. She was detained, um, and she actually the resident of Owensboro was detained in immigration detention because she couldn't prove that she was a U.S. citizen. By law, she's a U.S. citizen, but was still detained in, in immigration. The issue with immigration detention is that it's also something that was touched on in Fort Monson. In immigration, it's a administrative law court, and you um, don't have to process rights in immigration court. So um, if you're accused of a crime in court, you have to process rights. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to, to, to an attorney. You have all of these rights. Um, in immigration court, you don't have those rights. So you can be detained um, on uh, a suspicion of being here um, without status, um, and you are not entitled to an attorney. Um, you are not entitled to all of these little things that you are entitled to if you're accused criminally. Um, there was a decision long, long ago that this is because in immigration the, uh, there is not a, a penalty. The, uh, at the end of a removal hearing, if you are uh, asked to be removed from the country, that's not a, that's not a punishment. So you don't have um, due process rights in immigration court. Um, we have detained people, um, we've detained children, um, obviously, and separated them um, some 2,000 that were, were still um, not joined with their families. Um, is that a violation of, of due process and their, and their civil rights? Everyone being found in the United States has um, rights to due process. So we all, you don't have to be a citizen to have rights to due process. Um, so there is a question on de detaining someone and detaining their liberty on whether or not that is, is right or not. They can do it in administrative law courts because again, as I said, your detention, uh, your, you, they are keeping you detained waiting for a removal hearing, and at your, the end of your removal hearing, the punish, this, this thing called removal was not a punishment. So, um, you know, it, it's really a difficult uh, slide in between what we, where we say that, where you have due process rights and where you don't. Right. But if that's the legal standing of why you can detain someone in immigration detention, um, and it be okay without it giving them an attorney. Right. Yeah, definitely. Just a quick add on. One of these, Bush 2008, argued that the uh, territorial, just being within a place where the United States has a preponderance of authority, 
gives you, constitutes the fact that you have due process rights. Well, you can push had to do with uh, detainees at Guantanamo Bay, right? There are scholars who argue that, in effect, because of what Susan said of, about the administrative um, uh, immigration courts and, and immigration courts, uh, some people have less rights, in a sense, than detainees at Guantanamo Bay, at least in, in terms of like some of their ability to access due process rights for the reason she enumerated. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Anybody else want to add something? Or I've got a, another question here. So, uh, do you think racism slash Orientalism explains the lower numbers of white Germans and Italians interned? <laughs> well, Matt, I know you listed some numbers there, and I yeah. Uh, okay, so I did a little research in the days leading up to this, and depending on what data you look at, there are between 10 and 12 million illegal immigrants living in the United States. Ten, let's just say it's closer to 10. Uh, this data that I looked at suggested that 42% of those people came here with travel visas, student visas, and work visas, and let them expire. In other words, a wall would be, would be of no consequence to those people, right? So that's nearly 50%, right, if those numbers are even halfway accurate. Um, I'm from San Diego, California. I was there for 44 years. There's already a wall in San Diego. Great big wall. There's a very heavy border patrol presence, particularly at all the various points of entry, as well as um, the various checkpoints. Um, and if you watch the local news in San Diego, about once a week there's a story about how a tunnel was uncovered. I've heard the story but they discovered a tunnel, and I'm, I'm getting off top a little bit here, I'm gonna circle back around. Um, but uh, they would find a tunnel, and some of these tunnels were really elaborate. Um, they were electrified, some were two to three miles long. They had a railroad trackage, and they had these carts that they were moving back and forth, and they'd been in use for years, right? And they'd been bringing, you know, weapons going from the U.S. to Mexico, drugs coming from Mexico to the U.S., immigrants, who knows what. So, again, another way of circumventing a wall. Um, and our president is very fond of saying that walls work. Well, walls don't work. I mean, that's clear. A wall is, a, is an impediment. It's a barrier. Um, can anyone tell me why the Great Wall of China was built? What was its intended purpose? Anybody? Mongolians. Yeah, but was it to keep them out? Temporary. It's just slow them down. Yeah. It's so that so you can mount a response. Yeah, yeah. So the Chinese seem to understand that pretty well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to follow up, though, real quick, uh, in I used to live in South Mississippi, and we had Camp Shelby, and we housed lots of white Germans, and they were treated fairly well. I mean, they had to dig a lake, um, and but. For the most part, they have a nice museum, and you can go there. And they had bands, and I mean, they it was. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, same thing. And so, did you uncover any of that uh, sort of disparity and treatment while you did? If not, that's okay. It's. Yeah. The fact that people who have the right to be here and have looked more like Anglo-Saxons. Understood. So I, I did mention that the Italians and German immigrants were treated a little bit differently. They weren't subject to the same types of, um, you know, hard labor. That although you're giving me a nice example of how, you know, I mean, digging a lake sounds like really hard work. Yeah. It doesn't sound terribly enjoyable. 
but in terms of you know distinguishing various shades and, and you know maybe harsher punishments, I've not seen a lot of that. I mean, it had more to do with mistakes that were made based on ethnicity. So. Um, you know, one of the documents that I gave my students was uh, an article that was written for Life magazine um, right after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and it was basically, you know, distinguishing characteristics of Japanese people and how to differentiate, how to distinguish them from the Chinese. And it was, I mean, it, it was unbelievable, like facial characteristics, height, the, the distance from the knee to the calf, <laughs> yeah. just the, you know, biological proof that these people are Japanese. Yeah. Yeah, New Orleans, uh, they have a D-Day museum that has fascinating stuff that, you know, because they wear different shoes, you can spot one, right? Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have a question from the audience. I think it's a good question to end on. We've got about five minutes or so. Um, but it says, how do we get programs such as this to be newsworthy <laughs> and placed in newspapers and TV, et cetera, and also taught by teachers in middle school and high school? So any, any thoughts of how to, to put some of what we've said into action in our community? I know we have some people out in the audience who are... <laughs> well, I think um, inviting our elected officials, um, uh, I think those of us are, who are working at the schools here, at the universities, um, make an active effort to send out emails to our kids uh, to remind them to come. However, there's always that transportation issue uh, for many of the students. Um, so there are different ways about it. Um, here at the Human Relations Commission, um, our executive director makes a very uh, huge effort in uh, making sure that our elected officials uh, are aware of whatever uh, events are going on, uh, not just the ones that the Relations Commission is sponsoring, but other um, organizations as well. I think it's very important to continue to engage our elected officials uh, and also make sure that we are really in um, in front of them and with open arms and welcoming that you know, we would like to have you here. Um, you know, we give out uh, news clubs with uh, the local uh, news agencies here to remind them, um, and it's really up to them. I mean, the only other thing I can think of is um, just, you know, having rallies before each event. A lot of Top 10 historical events you should know about your country. We have to come to them. Yeah. Um, every elected official is on the email list for this. I got a response from one who said he was really sorry he couldn't be here. He was going to be out of town down that and he has come to several. We have had elected officials at these discussions in the past. 
but you know, like anything that's ongoing, it sort of falls to the bottom of the calendar. Yeah. If we yes, but if we could have these ready-made um, lesson plans, you know, for some of our and, and I usually think about things that are later in history. Like I think I, we were talking before the the, the panel started about. Um, I used to teach a, a class of Russia as well on law and social issues and um, that my students hadn't heard of four months ago and that they're not getting it high school. And I tried to say, well, maybe it's because they didn't get World War II. You know, like maybe their history class thing is still a little too long on the civil war on, 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 on the civil war. <laughs> um, but maybe if we had some ready-made lesson plans on some of these lesser discussed topics that our kids really need to know about. Like our our poor Matsu or um, our black or spell or some of our other things that have occurred in our history, maybe they they would get it and it could spark some of these discussions that they need to have earlier on. Another another way to do it is to use fiction. Yeah. Use it in English classes. So one of one of my favorite novels about this issue was Hotel on the Fourth Suite, which is about Seattle and the Japanese internment. You know, if you can incorporate short stories or something like that, where kids can relate to the issue, you know, we, yeah. we might actually get somewhere. Yeah. I'd like to add that um, just working currently with the Davis County um, School District, uh, there is a whole bunch of things that, you know, hurdles that need to be met before uh, any one of us can even take our proffered. Syllabus or you know potential. Hey, can we add this uh, to the curriculum? There's a whole bunch of stuff uh, that needs to be, and it's a very long process. Um, I think that if, if this initiative is something that we all would like to undertake, then, then we need to look at it through uh, legal means, of course, and then also uh, meet uh, consistently with the school districts and see because um, haphazardly it'll most certainly be turned out. You know, and, and it's it is what it is. There you know, rules and regulations by state, uh, by county and uh, everybody has to kinda of follow suit. All right, I want to thank you all for coming out and say a special thanks again to everyone involved, the American Association of University Women, the Ministerial Association, the NAAC, NAACP, uh, the Owensboro Human Relations Commission, and the Davis County Public Library. And most of all, our panelists, and let's give them a nice round of applause. I'm sure you can uh, ask them lots more questions, buy them dinner, or you know, <laughs> stop by their house if you want to. <laughs> Be safe. I teach my logic class.